1: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. I am your host, Michael Johnston, and today I have Dr. Pawan Dingra with me to discuss his newest book, Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behaviors Are Not Enough. Thank you, Dr. Dingra, for joining me today.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: How did you become interested in the topic of hyper education of youth and what inspired you to write this book? So
0: I got interested in this with I was when I was a curator at the Smithsonian and I uh, and that project there was to create an exhibition on the Indian American experience, and so as part of that, you're you know, you're researching different, multiple different trajectories, and one of those was these youth involved in spelling bees, and you know if you or your listeners don't already know, Indian American youth have come to dominate the Scripps National Spelling Bee, so it's kind of an interesting and you know cute little anecdote, but as I started talking to the families about their participation and interest in these competitions, uh, I became more and more intrigued by their motivations, and so that led me to think about the pursuit of education uh, outside of school as its own kind of commitment, um, which then led me to the, um, the growth of this book eventually.
1: Okay. And hypereducation. So, hypereducation in these families that you uh, started to get to know better, what does it mean to be uh, overprogrammed?
0: Right. So, overprogrammed is a term that one of the people I interviewed, um, a white mother in the, Bo- in the Boston suburb, she used to refer to these Asian American families who pursue hypereducation. And the idea she was reflecting is that as more and more youth are taking extra enrichment educational classes, then that kind of raises the bar of what's expected of youth in schools today. And so she felt that her kids, who were not really interested in doing more education outside of school, were in some ways being left behind, even though they were doing just fine in school and they were following the school curriculum. In other words, they were doing nothing wrong, and yet she felt they were being penalized. And so she kind of read the families who were doing this hypereducation, as I call it, as overprogrammed and having, you know, problematic cultural influences. Uh, and this idea of being overprogrammed, I think it really resonates because many of the families that I look at are Asian American. And the idea of Asian Americans being kind of robotic and programmed and just focused on achievement at all costs is in our kind of um, cultural narrative around them and so that when she said that it resonated in a way that i thought was very telling so it's not my particular reflection of these families but i'm referring to how they're seen um, by um, the, basically their neighbors
1: yes and um, this this, uh, environment that you, um, are speaking of and getting, and th- this is not your own words. This is the words coming from the participants about over-programming and hyper-education and feeling, uh, a sense of, uh, either having an advantage or disadvantage over others, but, uh, uh particularly with, uh, some of these Asian American families feeling like they, um, have to work harder to get into, um, uh, into a variety, uh, like college particularly, uh, I think was a major focus of your uh, of your book. But uh, is this a product of uh, post-industrial society that we live in?
0: In many ways, right, This what we're talking about, one of the main points of the book, and it's a great question, is that the focus that these families have on enrichment education outside of school, it gets looked at by, for instance, the mother who calls these families over or by teachers and other educators who feel that these are mistaken pursuits by these families. When we talk about the, the, these families' pursuit of education in this kind of overprogrammed or problematic way, what we ignore is your is the point you're raising, which is that this pursuit of education outside of school is very much in line with current educational models more generally speaking, and parenting models more generally. All kinds of parents, especially middle-class parents uh, or those with higher incomes, are looking to give their kids advantages um, relative to others in the you know the pursuit towards whether that be college or just kind of cognitive growth or future work opportunities. And many of those pursuits take place outside of school through extracurriculars, whether it be sports or the arts or anything else, and not in terms of. Um educational uh, outcomes outside of school educational pursuits outside of school, and so what we these families are doing seems problematic to a lot of parents because you know the school system should to be taking care of education and parents should be pursuing other kids' interests. But in reality, pursuing education outside of school is not that different than pursuing you know club soccer or pursuing you know private violin. Lessons or something else, which is more common and accepted. And there is a, again, getting back to your question, there's a general pressure on families in this neoliberal moment to basically create kids who will, you know, not only survive, but excel. Otherwise, who's to blame but the parents themselves? So a lot of parents are putting pressures onto their kids and having them pursue things they may not otherwise pursue. These families are doing it through education. But it's not that different than other kinds of pursuits parents are doing in this age.
1: And uh, if I remember correctly, some of the uh, interviewees, some of your participants argued that the reason that they were focusing on education is based on the capital that they uh, have in their family and their life. Mm -hmm. And the capital that I'm talking about is cultural capital, the necessary knowledge and skills to uh, help their children advance in those areas that the children are focusing on.
0: Right, and so um, you know, these families are very much aware of their immigrant and racial status. Again, for the Asian American families, Uh, and they're and I'm not trying to paint them as somehow you know quite marginalized or at risk. I mean, they're they're professionals, and they have they live in you know middle class or upper middle class neighborhoods, um, and they have you know well paying positions and the like. So that's you know this is a a story of privilege in many ways. But within that privilege, of course, many of us don't recognize our own privilege. We only see our, our lack of opportunities relative to others. And the same thing is true for them. So they see that, you know, we're not, we don't have the same kind of social capital that our neighbors, they presume their neighbors do, who can therefore rely on connections or at least a comfort zone that can ha- enable their kids to get jobs pretty much no matter what their kids major in or what their kids pursue. And they have high human capital, but they don't necessarily believe that's gonna necessarily translate into great jobs for their kids unless they really instill more opportunities for their kids at a young age. And the opportunities they think will resonate the most for their experiences and for their kids are educational. And the reasons are that's how they grew up. They made it out of um out of their homelands into the US through Educational success and professional achievement. And so, in their minds, that's the main avenue for their kids to excel, especially as I said, they lack other opportunities elsewhere. Um, they don't, they know that they, as one person said, we don't know the handshake that comes with being, you know, a graduate of a public university here. Like, we don't have those alumni networks, we don't have that comfort of ease. Um, and so, what we do know is, you know, education and studying. Uh, and for for better or worse. And so it'd be foolish of us as parents, and arguably even irresponsible of us, if we didn't maximize what we do know for our kids, because A, that worked for us in the past, and B, we have deficits in other kinds of capital that other families here have. So we have to overcompensate in what we can do.
1: And your focus wasn't necessarily on all race and uh, ethnic backgrounds. But some of the interviewees did make mention to their experience of programming with other uh, racial groups, ethnic groups, and class groups. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm.
0: So the families I looked at are, so I'll just say a quick step back, is it's an ethnography on um, uh, primarily Asian Indian American families, but also white families and other Asian American families, and, uh, and some interviews with uh, African American and Latinx families. Um, these families live um, oftentimes in the Boston areas, but um, I met families at, um, all over the country because I would go to these, for instance, national academic competitions, like spelling competitions or math competitions, um, and they brought in families from all over the country. And so I would meet people there, and it would be educators, parents, kids. Um, so well, much of the observations Take place in these um, competitions and also in the Boston area, and many of the interviewees are from the Boston area. Um, it actually has a national scope intentionally. So, in terms of the racial demographics, more particularly, right, a lot of them were, as I said, Asian Indian Americans, um, which I'll explain why I chose them in the first in, in a second. Um, but also white families and others, and even if they weren't, um, and and I spoke to the families. Uh, they were very much conscious of you know racial dynamics at play uh, around them um, and then you know some of them would have stereotypical views of other races and say we want to make sure our kids grow up to be like us as opposed to like you know quote unquote them um, and this and this would happen in explicit ways but oftentimes in implicit ways uh, and this was true for the immigrants and also for the U.S.-born white Americans that I interviewed I have a number of, in fact, a whole chapter on U.S.-born white Americans and how they're approaching the same uh, tactic of hypereducation. Um, and the point there for that chapter is to demonstrate that this story is not just a unique story about one ethnic group or one racial group. This is a large pattern that we're seeing in metropolitan areas. And, you know, it plays out differently for different groups, but we're seeing a, rel- a lot of similarities. One last thing, I'll is get back to why did I choose Asian Indians? Um, well, yeah, obviously I am Indian, so I have a connection. But the real, you know, thoughtful reason is that this is a group that is becoming more and more known, as I mentioned earlier, for you know really strong academic achievement. For instance, you know, excelling in national competitions that are broadcast live on TV, right? Um, and Asian Americans in general, are obviously, kind of known, uh, you know, right or wrong as being academically committed and high achieving. And so you in my mind, you wanna tackle this question of hybrid education at its kind of apex. And that meant, um, for this case, looking at Asian Americans, but like I said, broadening out from them, because it's not a story of one ethnic group. In fact, the story is not about them per se, right? The story is about this broader parenting educational trend that we see more pronounced in certain groups or certain areas, but that is a growing trend nationally.
1: Yes, and I think another um, piece that really rang uh, out in in the, in the book was the the need for uh, things beyond high, um, beyond education, the extracurricular, the co curricular activities, in order to get the upper hand in college. When that itself may still not be enough to get into um, right. into the best colleges.
0: Right. A lot of the families that I speak to. Um, Their kids are doing, you know, these national um, learning centers that some of the listeners may have heard of, for instance, Kumon or Mathnasium. And these are, you know, some of the fastest growing franchises in the country, not even just education franchises. If any kind of franchise, uh, these are among the fastest growing. And a large part of the book is studying, you know, again, the kids invested in these um, after school enrichment centers. Uh, So again, this is a national trend beyond just any one ethnic group or one region. And the parents are doing this in order to give their kids a leg up in the college application process. But I also interviewed college um, admissions officers as part of the book. And how do they see this kind of commitment to education as a means for um, advancement? And uh, to your point, right, they don't agree that this is the best strategy for youth to... Um, kind of create a resume that's persuasive to, to them uh, on the other side of the college admissions table. Um, but then again, there's a cat, kind of catch 22 the parents believe right. They know their kids are supposed to be well-rounded and not just academically focused, but that these Asian American parents still believe that unless they achieve more than other racial groups and even achieve more than other Asian Americans, they won't be seen as viable. So the parents feel really have to put a lot of commitment into education. Um, because other Asian Americans and other groups will be, and because they're going to be assessed differently than other groups are going to be, while they also have to kind of somehow come across as not too academically focused. So it's a catch-22 these parents feel that they're in.
1: And some of this comes back from, I think you also mentioned to uh, some of the universities in their homeland, uh, having the expectation of being somewhere near the top 2%, whereas uh, universities in the United States might be more available but are still very competitive.
0: Right. Some of the universities that these immigrants graduated from in India are more competitive than our most competitive universities here. Um, And so for them to get into those kind of universities uh, required a very significant commitment to education um, and the process of learning uh, and measurable outcomes like test taking Um, that they come to believe have value um, and then want to see their kids um, here um, kind of not mimic because they're aware things are different here, but still be able to perform.
1: And then to replicate it to assure that uh, the best of education is possible, again, going back to the capital Mm -hmm. that one knows and um, using it to their advantage, which... uh, I don't mean to make it negative. It's it's actually a positive thing,
0: right? There are are positives and negatives. Like one of the goals of the book is to take this, you know, tiger parent caricature and really help us understand actually what does motivate people who are not caricatures, but whose practices outsiders may think are you know problematic or tiger parentish. And let's give voice to them, but not in a way that's you know not um, critical. Uh, so we can understand how there are problems that come around with this kind of parenting uh, choices whether that be student stress which is very meaningful whether that be the lack of you know emphasis on other means of growth besides academic um, whether that be uh, some of the kids who I interview who you know as they grow up to be adults can regret uh, their own focus on particular um, academic topics and also how they realize as they focus on academics, they're more likely to get racialized as being kind of the Asian American nerd, and that has significant social consequences for them. So there are downsides to this, even though the parents believe this is the best strategy that they can come up with for their kid's safety. When the parents operate, and the um, as the book um, indicates, on a binary of safety versus risk, and that's how they kind of understand the choices are in front of them. And so they obviously you know, choose choices they think will help their kids in terms of their safety, whether that be academic safety or moral safety. And they're also aware that, you know, if they had a different kind of relationship to the, to the United States and different kind of upbringing, they might choose riskier choices, which they can have their own benefits, right? You know, great risk, risk can, can reap great rewards, um, and other kind of unexpected kind of gains, uh, but they and they're mindful of that, but still make decisions to, you know, prioritize a certain way of upbringing that they think will, if nothing else, keep their kids on the right path.
1: Excellent. So now um, maybe we could turn the tables and talk a little bit about the schools and the outlook that uh, your interviewees had on on schools not doing their jobs, and uh, what did you hear from the participants about? About schools not doing their job or not doing enough,
0: right? So um, this—that's a great question, and this came up um, from a variety of parents uh, in different ways. So one of the themes among the immigrant parents was that growing up in their homeland, they thought that they had—they were more challenged by the schools at a young age than American schools do, and it's important to highlight that their kids are in well-resourced, well-ranked schools. Um, and so, and they had, in fact, these parents would move to their towns, uh, their suburbs typically, because of the reputation of the school districts. So they liked the schools and they appreciated the schools. But even with that being said, they felt the schools were not doing enough to challenge their kids. And other parents, whether even those who were, you know, US born and raised, white families would say, Our schools are fine. In fact, one father said, My school is very good, but it doesn't do much for kids who are in the top 30, even 40% of the academic standing. And he was referring to his elementary school and middle school. And that may not be true. um, And it may be, even if it is true, there might be a good reason for that. But parents such as these believed that even in good schools, there was so much more their kids could be learning and to not do that would be somehow letting the kids down. Um, And so they, Felt that the school curriculum could be again more challenging that there could be what they call differential learning that's better done uh, so that kids at a higher academic performance spectrum could be uh, given different kinds of content um, and lacking that they uh, they then say well we'll take it into our own hands and we will educate our kids on our own by enrolling them in the, you know in after-school tutoring centers or uh, pursuing academic competitions or, or the like
1: and I, I think this was in reference to that same mentality of trying to provide the best opportunity for their kids and and this is the uh, i quote from one of the participants survival in this world what uh, what does that mean
0: that's a great question and i and i appreciate you highlighting that, that reference for many of the immigrant families it really is as i mentioned before like this sense of if we don't accomplish something and secure our kids' future, there is real risk of failure. And that failure could mean more than just not getting another college of your choice or not getting a dream job. It could mean, you know, significant economic hardship. And that's how, that's the conditions in which they grew up. Um, now, these families, these parents who I interviewed, um, who grew up in India, they didn't grow up necessarily poor. I mean, a number of them grew up middle class, but they still realized that their middle-class had a kind of precarious uh, holding. And unless they excelled, especially in a space that was very competitive, then there was no guarantee of a middle-class job for themselves and for for their future. And so there's a sense of you have to survive and therefore to survive, you have to be competitive because there's so much other people around you who are striving for those few slots in the university and those few good jobs and it's not just about the job you get but as other person said like who you're able to marry depends on you know your education and your um, trajectory you know your family's well-being your parents' well-being depends on your education and your trajectory so there's a real it, again it's more than just the kind of competition for selective colleges we think of in the US it's more about the ability to really create a life for oneself and if that's your upbringing then of course you're going to focus 110 percent on what you need to do to you know um secure a upward trajectory for yourselves and your family and then when you move to the u.s because you've had success with that mindset and that kind of parenting or that kind of upbringing uh it makes sense to you know try to find ways to replicate that as fitting your current context
1: and does this uh hyper-education, does this focus begin like middle school and high school, or does it start much uh, much before that?
0: Well, that's a great question. Um, It starts much before that. So when we think of tutoring, we often think about, you know, oh, someone's getting tutored for the SAT or for a class or a test or a class at an upper level, but this is um, enrichment education that is at the middle school, elementary, and even uh, preschool level, pre-K level. Uh, in fact, the book focuses only on families whose kids are in middle school or younger, and most of them are in elementary school. I even saw a child in a diaper at a math enrichment center, right? And Kumon, as an example, has uh, created a new program, it's not too new anymore, a program called Junior Kumon, which targets three-year-olds. And it, you know, as it says, will teach your kids to recognize letters and numbers and shapes and patterns Right? No kid is too young to be enrolled in a tutoring center. I was giving a talk at university, and one of the professors there um, was sharing that she you know, was at the dentist, and she has a six-year-old. And the dentist, you know, apropos of pretty much nothing, says to her, "Oh, he should be doing, you know, Kumon or something else. Uh, he's already, he's six years old," and that kind of took her aback. Like, he's so young. Why would he be doing something like that if he's or, you know if he's doing fine in school and developing fine? Um, but even six years old right can be late because there are kids half that age who are enrolling in these um, after school tutoring centers. And again, parents are responding to you know partly a sense of like you know hoarding privileges. Like I'm privileged. And I want to keep that for myself, and so I'm going to do whatever I can to, to secure that. And that's definitely a pattern. Um, and, but simultaneously, um, a sense of fear, right? If we don't do this, what's, what's the fate of these kids?
1: And the parents were hyper aware of the, uh, of the social structures that existed and how to take the upper hand. How, how involved were they? Because I, I felt a great intensity of their involvement. Uh, you used the term tiger parents, mm-hmm. although this isn't the first time it's been used. Uh, what, does that, what does that mean?
0: So, uh, uh, yeah, tiger parenting itself, I use as more of a um, it's a caricature that I try to debunk as an actual practice. Um, But these parents are involved in their kids' education. I mean, it can take the fact the kind of involvement can take the form take many kinds of forms. It can be as you know, simple, quote unquote, simple as you know, finding an after school program and driving the child to and from once or twice a week. Now, of course, that takes a lot of time and commitment and money. Um, so that's actually quite quite meaningful. Um, even if the parent doesn't check the homework that the kid does, even if the parent doesn't talk to the tutor or educator, um, there's still a commitment the parent is making. Um, but other parents went beyond simply enrolling a child and getting a child to and from the, the enrichment center, right? The tutoring center. Um, they would check the homework. They would talk to the to the teachers. They would. Um, if their child was doing an educational competition, like a spelling bee, then they would do elaborate work oftentimes to help coach the child. I have a lot of anecdotes uh, and observations of families, how they study together, how it's a family affair. You know, For example, um, one daughter um, would be coached by her mother for hours a day during the summer. And it was like, there's a summer routine. So I was with them you know, while they were doing this in their kitchen table you know, playing with, while they play with the dog and go over, you know, various words from German origin and now Dutch origin and whatever else it would be. Um, and that was the, how the mother was the coach, like the unpaid coach for her daughter's uh, spelling bee, um, competitions. And the daughter did, you know, made it all the way to the Scripps national spelling bee, and, you know, and which, which, is the major achievement. Right. Um, so parents rare, varied in how involved they were. Um, but it does take a commitment of some kind to get kids on this trajectory. Let me just add really quickly that again, one of the main points of the book is that these parents are not that different than other parents, right? This is the new normal in parenting. Whether it's yeah. education that some parents are doing, or you know, baseball or whatever else, uh, parents drive their kids to practices. They wash the uniforms. They you know pay the fees. While parents, a lot of parents are volunteer coaching, right? Parents are actively involved more and more in today's era. They have been in generations past. So this commitment to supervising education outside of school is just another example of this broader trend.
1: And uh, one of the things as sociologists we look for is patterns of behavior. Uh, We're not focused on the individual as much as we are interested in the patterns that uh, we may find in the research that we conduct. What role do the intersections of race and class play in this hypereducation of children? Because the pattern is much more than race and uh, race alone and ethnicity mm-hmm. alone. What role do you think the intersections play in the hypereducation of children?
0: That's a great question. Um, yeah, the, the families that are doing this are, uh, for the most part, professionals. Um, they are college educated, and they decided that we want to invest part of our money into our kids. Education um, for their growth, and but of course, like not all families who are you know well educated do this. So why do some do it over others? So it's not just about race, and not even just about class, um, but it's about a kind of cultural narrative these families understand their own upbringing through that makes pursuing education for their kids seem not only you know worth worthwhile but necessary. So, for instance, a lot of the families I'm referring to the US born white families who did this they would say you know we may be professionals now and have lived in you know a good sized house and have two cars and uh you know secure positions and everything else uh, but we're still different than our neighbors who um, they probably grew up with some wealth or some connections or some security but we did not we got through to where we are just through hard work and just through to commitment, to education, and so even though they're in you know again very secure positions and have nice vacations and everything else, they still don't see themselves as having made it to the same extent as their peers have. But they still believe that they whatever they have accomplished, they've accomplished the right way, right? Just through grit and commitment, education, and hard work. Because we didn't grow up with much; we either grew up middle class or poorer than that, and you know our families are. Understand what it means to work hard and not rely on the help of others, for just your parents or trust fund or something else, which they kind of, you know, imagine their neighbors have enjoyed. So it's not just race or class, but it's how those intersect with the narrative of your own upbringing that led you to be as accomplished as you are. And then, what do you have to do then for the next generation to maintain that? Right. Um, And so uh, it's 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 digging into their their personal narratives as connected to class and race that really uncover the trends.
1: And that's uh, that's the advantage of doing um, interviews and participant observation, being able to dig deep and provide depth that uh, isn't necessarily provided through quantitative means of of study. And uh, I think that's the, the value of the book.
0: Uh, I appreciate that. And I'll, one thing I just want to add um, after you, after that nice statement you just made, is when I was interviewing the families, and I would ask them, "Why do you want to do, you know, this educational pursuits?" You get answers that aren't that surprising, right? We want to make, you know, we want our kids to be challenged. We want them to get into college. Our kids enjoy these academic subjects. So we want to give them more things that they enjoy. Um, but when it, when you ask the parents, uh, not why they do it, but what they worry what happened if they stopped doing it or what they think about those families who don't do it it uncovered a, a deeper kind of reasoning than they would otherwise offer and that's where you hear more about the notion of i'm not just doing this to build up a certain amount of like human capital for my kids uh i'm bu- i'm doing this to make my kids a certain kind of person i want my kids to be good people not just you know qualified or smart people I want them to be good people. What a good person is, is someone who is not lazy, someone who is committed to upper mobility, someone who doesn't get involved in you know negative social or personal habits like drinking or premarital sex or other vices that these parents want in their kids or drugs. Um, and so these math centers and these academic competitions took on a cultural meaning well beyond their kind of capital building no, no um, kind of expressed meaning. And the cultural meaning was to make sure their kids grew up to be, as one father would say, I want my kid to be a contributor, want not to be lazy. I want them to be people who value hard work, et cetera, et cetera. And the more the parents talked about it in this way, then the more that it became clear to me that. They're asking, they wanted their kids to grow up to be a certain kind of person in opposition or in contrast to this other cultural image they had in their heads. And the cultural image they were trying to keep their kids from becoming mirrored are anti-black stereotypes, right? So they would refer to a lot of the tropes that are commonly applied to African-Americans um in popular culture and discourse, whether that be in terms of hard work, uh, you know, too committed to sports, uh, relying on, on not self-sufficient instead of relying on others for uh well for well-being, um concerns around uh drugs and and the like, uh unprotected sex, right? All of these stereotypes we have of minorities or the undeserving, right? Uh which would apply to other groups too, of course, right? That's what these parents were assigning to quote unquote Americans at large. And not just, you know, poor or minority Americans. They were referring to, again, their neighbors who are upper middle class or middle class whites. Um, They thought that American culture would be a, you know, as I say, a downward assimilation morally if they let their kids kind of melt into what, what their surroundings were. And instead, To prevent that, the parents wanted to make sure the kids grew up valuing hard work, committed to the moral path, making safe as opposed opposed to risky choices. And these learning centers and competitions were one part of that cultural package that put the kids on the right path. As one mother said, again, a white U.S. born and raised mother said, my grandparents survived the Holocaust, right? Um, And my parents are hardworking. I want my child to be to understand that and to be hardworking. And that's why I have my child in a math enrichment center. So that she the parent the mother drew a line between the grandparents' survival of the Holocaust to her child's math enrichment center. Because in her mind, it wasn't just about again making sure the kid could calculate numbers at a fast pace. It was about building the right kind of person. Okay. And um, that meant trying to avoid becoming the wrong kind of person which what you saw all all around her
1: and a goal to prevent, uh, the child from pursuing popular culture, uh, mm-hmm. which, which, uh, many times if we were to, um, be honest with ourselves and what we see in television or in the me- uh, in other types of media, uh, much of it is, uh, glam- uh, glamifying the, uh, uh, Making, drinking, and uh, uh, things like that—glamorous,
0: uh, right? And and that was, you know, that's part of their kind of cultural references as to what they want to avoid. But they also wanted to avoid even becoming like the the kids, the neighbor kids, the neighbors' kids, right? Who, again, are you know in the same school districts they are in, presumably doing fine in school. But unless you have that commitment. That parents are, you know, instill to a certain kind of lifestyle of education above all, and, and hard work above all, and making it on your own, not relying on others, then the risks of becoming spoiled, of becoming um, drawn into, like, you know, yeah, uh, you know, problematic behaviors for, for teens, as parents would say, became all the more likely.
1: This was an excellent read and i and I um look forward to um, sharing this with uh, our audience members and uh um I look forward to seeing where this where this research goes above and beyond that uh so we're all out of time to talk about this book we have time for one more question uh what are you working on now
0: okay thank you for asking so um the book you mentioned earlier the review text on Asian america um we re- um, have been asked to do a second edition for that, which is really great. So that is in the works. Uh, and I'm also um, intrigued by this, I also started researching this other kind of different topic on the questions around uh, race and diversity for um, a- a- as they play out in our public humanities. So I'll elaborate on this pretty quickly, just to say that a lot of what we, um, a lot of where most people get access to or encounter the ideas of the public humanities are through um, libraries, museums, spaces like that. These are, are some of our most enlightened spaces, right? They take a lot of the ideas that are circulating um, in the kind of, uh, not, not just in the academy, but elsewhere. Um, in humanistic circles, and they, you know, give them, make them tangible for the general public. And these are, you know, for the most part, liberal spaces, they have, they're multicultural spaces, Uh, they're committed to a certain kind of diversity and equity, and yet they're often plagued by systemic inequalities around race, around sexuality, around belonging, that, I find really intriguing the point being here we have spaces that are the, some of our most like enlightened in the public sphere and even he, yet even here uh we're finding that they are um reproducing right um systemic inequalities and so in some ways it's similar to this current book that I'm looking at how spaces that are that are educational outside of school how they work and how they may reproduce some of the main exact pro- some of the exact problems they're trying to overcome. So uh, I've been um, researching that some, uh, and I find it as a fascinating uh, topic to for people to learn more about.
1: Excellent. So are you focused on the uh, are you focused on the arts and the museums themselves, and looking at the narratives that are explored through people who work there, or are you focused on uh, on people who are accessing those and, and learning the narratives from, uh, mm. uh, from, from the, uh, consumer.
0: So it'd be uh, a combination would be like talking to the people who run the libraries and other humanistic space, public humanities, to understand how they think about these topics, uh, how, what they want to educate, because it's about education, right? Uh, how they want to educate others around these topics. And also just looking at, you know, uh, a close reading of what kind of programs they do what kind of uh, uh, collections they have. Uh, and then a, a third dimension is also, as you um, suggested, um, how the, the customer, the clients, the public, interact with these spaces and what they take away, what the, how they view them. And um, so it'd, it's a mo- it'd be along different axes to interrogate these questions.
1: Yeah, and even maybe looking at government and the uh, and the amount of funding that goes toward right, uh, toward right, these different right. uh, programs.
0: Yeah, and these are, these are fascinating places. Like public libraries, uh, the more we learn about them, I learn about them, the more just impressed I am. I mean, they're on the front lines of so many of our social problems. They have, they have public libraries who are, you know, trying to in this current moment right now that we're in when we're you know um, dealing with a, these major challenges around us. Uh, with covid 19 are trying to you know uh, take care of, pub- of families who no longer get food uh, in their schools um, and even before this current crisis uh, they were you know when schools out of session in the summertime public libraries were a space that would assist families who otherwise would get assisted through school We have public libraries that have been in the front lines of the opioid crisis uh, more and more are canceling late fees so that you know, no family feels a barrier to accessing material materials um, and feeling welcome in a lot in these spaces. Museums also are trying to reinvent themselves to be more representative of their local communities. So these are really impressive, you know, trends um, and should be applauded. And so studying how their work, how they you know what, how those who run them are thinking about it, how the public encounters them, what their actual programming um, or Displays are like all of that becomes I think all the more relevant at a time like this for these particular kinds of educational spaces.
1: Excellent. so how far in are you?
0: Oh I'm just in the beginning stages um,
1: so it'll be a while until
0: uh, this comes to fruition. I mean, as any author knows, right writing a book is a it's an exhausting and, and labor intensive process, so it takes a while to get back the Energy to um, dive fully into a new project, but it's but it's coming along. I'm starting it slowly, and I'm enjoying it.
1: Yes, and it's uh, the the time I think is what makes it uh, most rewarding, and being able to digest all the information and Mm -hmm. data that is coming into you. So I I look forward to uh, to the results of your study and and your your next book, and uh, Mm -hmm. I hope to have you on the show again.
0: Well, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate um, not only this interview, but the ones that I've listened to for the, for a while now—it's been, been really enlightening. I appreciate the opportunity to share this.
1: Thank you again. This is New Books uh, in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network, and today I had Dr. Paulin Dingra from Amherst College on the show today.
0: Thank you so much.